Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. You can also find the passage in your bulletin. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 9. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we acknowledge that you dwell in a high and holy place. But you also dwell with him who is of a humble and contrite spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly. And so we ask, Lord, that today that you would dwell in our hearts through faith, through a humble faith, that you would revive our hearts that we would be encouraged and refreshed, that we would turn from anxious thoughts to a rootedness in our faith, a strengthened faith, a peace in our hearts as we, as we look to your mighty hand and as we rest in your loving and caring heart. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak through your word today in each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. There once was a poor pastor who served his whole ministry in two small Presbyterian churches in rural Scotland. His name was Thomas Boston. He was born in 1676, 30 years after our Westminster Confession of Faith was completed. He had only enough money to receive just an introductory uh, theological education in Edinburgh, but he fully invested himself in the bit of education he did receive. At his first church, for church, at his first church service in 1699, the total number of people who came was seven. He nevertheless continued to minister faithfully with much prayer. Boston uh, married Catherine, and they had ten children, but tragically, they buried six. Catherine struggled with her mental health, and Thomas himself struggled with what we would call today uh, depression. And on top of that, his, his general health and strength uh, was, was, a, was a challenge throughout his entire life. But he never missed a, pulp, uh, a Sunday in the pulpit. In his second church, after eight years of ministry there, 
Many of his congregants were still so persistent in sinful living that he compared his congregation to the Corinthian church and he told his wife, My heart is alienated from this place. He nevertheless continued to labor, preach, and pray. Amidst all this trial for many years, this pastor was trying to write a book. When he finally reached the point where he wanted to publish it, a rebellion broke out in Scotland in 1715. Boston became very anxious about his book. And in his memoirs, he writes that he was afraid that if he, if he tried to get the book published, it would likely get lost in all the turmoil from the rebellion. And he feared that the best time to get his book published uh, had passed. But despite his anxious thoughts, Boston continued to pray for God's blessing on his book. In a journal entry, he wrote... I spent, therefore, the 24th of November in prayer for a blessing to be entailed on that book, not only in the time of my life, but after my death. He was anxious, but he prayed for God to bless his work beyond his life. Finally, five years after the rebellion, in 1720, the book was published. The title of the book? Human Nature in Its Fourfold State, an extensive theological work on the four states of man from chapter 9 of the Westminster Confession. It was not an ivory tower book by any means. It has the tone of a preacher who is writing to convert sinners with the gospel and to encourage saints in their faith. When he finally received his first copy, Boston wrote, I took it and spread it before the Lord, praying for a blessing to be entailed on it, for the conviction and conversion of sinners and edification of saints, for the time I am in life and after I shall be in the dust. Though the book was long in writing and long in publishing, it has been, by God's grace, long with success. God answered Boston's prayer for the book, in Scotland, England, and in the United States, it went through 100 editions just within the 1700s, becoming the most published Scottish book of the century. Human nature in its fourfold state is still, it's still encouraging many saints today. Thomas Boston lived a humble life, not only in uh, worldly standards of, of being poor and weak and uh, with limited success, but, but more importantly, he was humble before God and his flock. Although he had fears, he brought them to God in prayer and stayed faithfully serving his people no matter how many there were and no matter how sinful they were. And God gave him grace and blessed his work. The past two Sundays we've considered the Lord's Supper. It's through the Lord's Supper that we receive grace. Yet we do not receive grace unless we partake of the Lord's Supper with the right disposition, a heart of faith and humility. St. Augustine once said, Humility is the vessel of all graces. Humility is the vessel of all graces. 
So today we're going to consider this grace-receiving disposition of humility. We will see how God's word connects humility with anxiety. And even uh, personal conflict and spiritual warfare. So let's begin by looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In the context of this chapter, we see that the Apostle Peter is writing to elders on how they are to lead and serve the church. Peter then, then he writes to uh, the people of the church in verse 5, that they are to be submissive to their elders. Then Peter, then he addresses everyone saying, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So everyone, regardless of, whether an, they, regardless of whether they are an elder or not, is to clothe themselves with a heart of humility as they engage with others from the church. At the end of verse 5, Peter grounds his call for humility with a proverb. And it's a proverb from Proverbs 3.34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In this proverb, we see two parts. The first is a warning that God opposes the proud. And the second is a promise that God gives grace to the humble. So let's first consider the warning. God is an enemy of the arrogant. It has been said by someone that other sins flee from God. Pride alone opposes itself to God. Therefore, God also, in turn, opposes himself to the proud. We see that God opposes the proud throughout the Bible, again and again and again. I mean, just think of a, a few people from the Bible. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar. He thought he had made Babylon powerful and mighty and he boasted that it was all for his glory and his majesty. And so, as we read in the book of Daniel, because of his pride, God humbled him and threw him out of his kingdom and made him eat grass like an ox. And what about the famous Goliath? I mean, he opposed God and the Israelite army and he was cursing David. Therefore, God opposed him and used that shepherd boy to kill the mighty warrior. And as we go into a new sermon series on 2 Samuel, I think it would be good for us to consider Saul and how he chose to disobey God and rule his own way and how God therefore took the kingdom away from him and gave it to the humble shepherd boy, David. There are also many other examples in Scripture, just again and again and again. I mean, think of like the sons of Korah, think of King Herod, think of Satan, and so on. So that's the warning that God opposes the proud. So now let's consider the promise that we see in this humility proverb. God gives grace to the humble. Everything God does, 
He does for his own glory. So when God gives grace to a humble person, he does so because a humble person receives it and uses it in a worshipful way and gives thanks back to God. There are also many, many examples throughout the Bible of God giving grace to the humble. Think of Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons. He was sold into slavery uh, by his brothers and he ended up in Potiphar's house and he was faithful there and he was humble there and Potiphar's wife approached him and he humbly followed God and ran away from her and that put him that, and then he ended up in prison. But God gave him grace and exalted him to being the second in command of all of Egypt. Or consider Moses. I mean, he was just a an Israelite with a speech problem and, and God raised him up to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and to give them the law at Mount Sinai. And as we read from 1 Samuel, uh, there's Hannah and her story and how she was humble uh, towards God and, and even though she uh, was mocked for not having any children, she didn't just turn inward in bitterness she instead went outward in prayer to God and God blessed her with a son whom she named Samuel. We could also consider Job, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, John the Baptist, Paul, Epaphroditus, and just so many others who are examples of God pouring out his grace to the humble. Jesus says something very similar to this proverb in, in Matthew chapter 23, saying, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's the exact same language that we were reading in 1 Samuel chapter 2 just a few minutes ago from Hannah's prayer. So this proverb, it just rings true again and again and again throughout Scripture. So it should be a core truth to guide our Christian lives. And as we walk through 2 Samuel in the months to come, let's keep our eyes open for God, how God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now what does the Christian life, life, what does the Christian life look like in light of this proverb? Let's see how Peter applies it. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Surrounding this humility proverb are two commands that grow out of the proverb. The first is a command for horizontal humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Christians are, are to speak humbly to their fellow Christians, to serve each other, humbly to, to yield their preferences to each other and consider the needs and lives 
of each other. And I love how uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 uh, puts it. Uh, and actually, Elder Keith, he just, just prayed this too. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, count, count others more significant than yourselves. I just love how it's put that way. So we are to live with this horizontal humility. Now the second command from verse 6 is a call for vertical humility. For vertical humility. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Now before we dive into how Peter applies humility to anxiety, I think it's important for us to see that horizontal humility flows out of vertical humility. And that vertical humility is often expressed through horizontal humility. You can't have one without the other. Let me explain. We cannot humble ourselves toward each other unless we're doing it out of submission to God's will for us. Otherwise, our service towards others will will just be merely self-serving and self-glorifying. And in the same way, when we submit ourselves to God to obey Him, to follow His will, and to, to deny ourselves of our own desires and will, we find that God calls us to serve others. To be like Jesus. And if we disobey God's call to serve each other, we're really not being humble towards God, are we? So humility towards others flows out of a heart that's humble towards God. And a heart that is humble towards God will obey His command to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ, to count them more significant than ourselves. Now let's consider verses 6 and 7. How Peter connects humility and anxiety together. In these two verses, there's just there's so much to see. I've found these two verses tremendously helpful for me in my daily battle with anxiety. In these two verses, we see that uh, we see the command to humble ourselves toward God. We see a promised reward for humility, and one practical way that we can live humbly before God. We also see two profoundly helpful aspects of God's character, that that He is mighty and that He is loving. First, let's consider the command. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So what, what comes to mind when you hear the mighty hand of God? Of God. What does it make you think of? In the Bible, the, the term mighty hand is only used once in the New Testament here in 1 Peter 5. And then it's used 16 times back in the Old Testament. And every time it's mentioned in the Old Testament, it's either referring directly to God's saving work of the Israelites through the Exodus, of taking them out of Egypt. Or it's uh, alluding to that event. So the term mighty hand, it's also often paired with uh, the phrase outstretched arm. So God's mighty hand and its outstretched arm go hand in hand. 
We see this in uh, uh, the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So when, when we see this command for us to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, we are to think of humbling, humbling ourselves under the same mighty hand that redeemed Israel from Egypt and worked amazing signs and, and all those plagues and hardened Pharaoh's heart and parted the Red Sea and destroyed the Egyptian army. That same mighty hand and outstretched arm is for you. It's for you, dear Christian. Now, the command here is not to put ourselves under the mighty hand of God because we're already under God's mighty hand. We can't put ourselves under God's hand just like we can't put ourselves under the sky. In our old house in Piers, we had a finished attic and it had two skylights. And humility is kind of like a skylight. A skylight doesn't put you under the sky, but rather it allows you to see the sky that you are under. Faith toward God opens our eyes to see his mighty hand reigning over us. And humility is our obedient response to seeing his omnipotent rule and reign. Next, we see a promised reward connected to the command so that at the proper time he may exalt you. He may exalt you. This is how God's kingdom works. The only way up is down. The only way to be exalted is through humility. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, then be a servant of all. Remember this, though. God exalts the humble at His proper timing. Not yours, not mine. He exalts the humble in His timing and in His way. And sometimes that honor is in this life and sometimes it is only in heaven. And we need to humbly accept that. We need to be patient for that. But know that the exaltation God does bring is far greater than the cost it may bring to you to live humbly before God and one another in this life. The cost is far, far worth it. It's a profoundly great investment. In verse 7, Peter shows one way that we can practically live a humble life. It says in verse 7, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, I, I grew up reading the NIV, uh, the New International Version of the Bible. And, and so uh, when I would read this verse, uh, it would, uh, verse 7 would be a completely different verse from verse 6. And it would say, cast your anxieties on him for he cares for you. Um, however, in, in the Greek, and, and as the ESV has, I think, rightly translated it, it's, uh, there, verses 6 and 7 are one sentence. There isn't, just, there isn't two commands, humble yourself, 
over here and cast your anxieties over here. But rather, there's one command. To humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And then, verse 7, shows how we are to humble ourselves. We are to humble ourselves by casting all of our anxieties on Him. So we see that casting our anxieties and worries and fears on God is an act of humility. But how is it just an act of humility? How is that so? How does trusting my anxieties to God cultivate humility toward God? The answer comes in understanding anxiety and who God is for us. So what is anxiety? In this context, I would say that anxiety is the disbelief in the mighty hand and loving heart of God for you. Anxiety, by nature, is unbelief in God's sovereign ability and faithfulness to save you and help you. Now, I also understand that with anxiety, there can be biological factors that can really uh, enhance the feelings of, of worry and fear. Things such as, such as trauma can really fuel anxiety in a, in a person's life. And so those, those aspects, I wouldn't say that those aspects are always related to a problem with your pride or, or, or your faith. However, within the context of our passage here that, that Peter's talking about, he's referring to, to a, a, a worrying that is denying God of his mighty hand over you. It's an anxiety uh, where you're managing your problems as if God's hand is too short. And that's the temptation that I often fall into myself. I often live like my problems are, are just too big for God. Now, I, I don't consciously think that because I know it's theologically wrong, right? But I often uh, despair when I get confronted with these perplexing problems and, and, and I don't turn to God in prayer. So think about something that you're concerned about. Maybe you're concerned about a person in your life who's just not changing. Maybe it's your own personal health. Maybe it's your future. Maybe it's the present pandemic. Maybe it's the political outlook. Maybe it's uh, your, your parenting and your, and your children. God's hand is mighty enough. And his arm is not too short to overcome any problem and to help you endure in the midst of trial. Come to God in prayer. Remember that he loves you far deeper than you know. And he's more powerful than you could ever imagine. And as you humbly bring your prayers to God... Know that He will meet you with His promised grace. I can't guarantee you that your problems will all go away, but I do know that God will turn your worrying into contentment and your fears into faith. Look now with me at verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
Resist him, firm in your faith. The Apostle Peter urges us to be watchful for the attacks of the devil. There are a lot of weird opinions out there uh, concerning spiritual warfare, aren't there? And I believe that some are actually outright dangerous and come from the occult's obsession with demonology. And it's just been Christianized. But here, uh, Peter gives a clear and simple example. The way we resist the way we resist the devil is by standing firm in our faith. It is that simple. You don't need to cast Satan out of rooms. You don't need to break generational curses through naming and claiming victory. You humbly stand firm in the faith. Humility is spiritual warfare. Because Satan, he often tries to enlarge your fears. He often tries to indulge your lusts. And he often tries to weaken your faith with doubts. Fear, lust, doubt. Those are three big temptations that Satan uses. Humility, however, when it faces fear from Satan, casts those fears to God through prayer. When humility faces lustful temptations and desires, it denies itself those worldly pleasures in obedience to a greater master. When humility faces doubt from Satan, it humbly trusts the simple gospel and truths from God's word. Remember Jesus' words when he was tempted? (laughs) Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So see your fight against the devil as being one on the road of humility toward God and others. Now let's go back to the humility proverb. That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we're all honest... As we've been considering humility, we've realized that we're really not all that humble. We each live with pride, and we're prideful in our anxiety. We count others, uh, we count ourselves more significant than others. We push our preferences and our wants and our desires ahead of others. And so when we hear that God opposes the proud, It may very well concern us. But remember this. This is a proverb. And proverbs often speak broadly and don't go into the exceptions. And there is an exception to this proverb that we all need. The exception is mercy. Mercy for the prideful. Mercy for us. We find this mercy at the cross. It was on the cross that God opposed the humble and gave grace to the prideful. Turn with me to Philippians 2, chapter 3. Philippians 2, verse 3, starting in verse 3 there. Do 
nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ obeyed the Father and humbled himself to the lowest point imaginable. A naked, public, slow, lonely, torturous death on a cross. God opposed the humble man. Now why would God do that? It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem right. 1 Peter 3.18 sheds light into God's purposes here. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The righteous for the unrighteous, the humble for the prideful, that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered and died for us. Christ, he was the most humble and perfectly righteous person. And he died for us, prideful, unrighteous people. God gave grace to us prideful sinners by having Jesus take the punishment, the opposition from God that we deserved, in order that we might be brought to God, exalted to the highest honor of sitting at God's table as his sons and daughters. Praise God. We'll, we will never be humble. Now get this. We will never be humble until we've seen how gracious God has been towards us in our pride. We can now rest assured as Christians that when we are prideful, and we definitely still have pride in this life, God will oppose our pride as a gracious, loving Father who will discipline us and have mercy on us and be patient with us as we learn to grow in humility. Let me end now by reading verses 9 through 11 of Philippians 2. And let us worship our exalted Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus' humility and exaltation that we find our humility and our exaltation. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Yes, Jesus, we worship you, we praise you, that you humbled yourself to the point of death that you had mercy on the prideful, on us. And so we ask, Lord, that we would rest in your work on the cross, that we would rest in your humble work for us, that we would have this mind, this mind of humility, which is ours in Christ Jesus, that we would treat each other as you have treated us 
with mercy. You, you died for us. You counted us more significant than yourself in your death. And through that, you have been exalted above every name, above us. And we praise you for that. We ask, Lord, that we would cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. And you have a mighty hand and an outstretched arm that is able to help us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do this for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.